Welcome to Coach House Talks. What do you know? Stop interfering in my life. You wouldn't understand what I'm going through. Things are different today, you know. Not when you were a kid. Hands up if you had any of those said to you. Come on, let's be honest. Yeah, see, anybody that's above a teenager or a young adult has those things said to them. And believe me, all right, let's, let's, let's put it away. If you're young, how, how many of you have said that to your parents? Or Yeah, see? See, we, it's true, isn't it? It's just a true statement. It's a true statement of life. Now, if only we could have stopped ourselves from saying or making such embarrassing statements, and, and, and I'm going to prove to you that they actually are embarrassing statements, based on what we think we can see rather than listening to that which as we grow older we realise comes from a depth of relational understanding, wisdom of experience and warnings from painful encounters that many of us go through in life. Would you agree? If we could help someone from going through what we've learned in our life experiences and we could do that just by giving them a gentle word saying, look, these things are going to may come against you and this may happen to you in life. You're going to do it, aren't you? And most parents do to their children. Don't do that because if you carry on doing that, this is the consequence. This is what might happen to you. Regardless as to whether that information is taken on board or not, we do it because of love. Would you agree? We do it because we don't want to see our kids hurt themselves. If we can get them to avoid something that we've learnt the painful experience of, we're going to pass on that information. We're going to pass it down so that they don't get hurt. Because it's a painful experience when advice is ignored or laughed away. But generation after generation will all reject and think that they know better. How do I know that? Because I did it. And if we're perfectly honest with ourselves, every person in this room has done the same thing. The fact you can all recognise it, the fact you've all put your hands up, whether young or old, tells me that this is true. Okay? And conversely, the opposite is also true. When we see wisdom being acted upon, when we pass something on and we see the results of that in people's lives, we are blessed. Now, I say that because I had the pleasure yesterday, along with Derek and Aileen and Mel and my mum, of going down to Josh's, or Josh and Tab's, housewarming. Now, they've not been able to have a housewarming. They moved during COVID, so it's been the first time they've been able to open up their house to their friends and family, for grandparents to see the house and all those kind of things. It's a big deal when your kids have their own house. So we were able to go yesterday, and it was such a blessing to see how Josh and Tab are doing. But it was a bigger blessing to see that actually he's part of a family at his church where all his pastors and his pastor's wives were there. And he was part of that pastoral team because he's now embarked on a training session with the church, works for the church, and they're investing in him. But what was lovely was to hear things like from his pastor or his pastor's wife, we're so excited to have Josh on board. It was so, so, such a blessing for us. It was such a blessing for me and Mel's parents, and I'm sure grandparents were equally blessed as well. 
But as we were talking, it got better than that. Because as we were talking to one of Josh's pastors, we found out that he lived in Blackpool and was brought up in Blackpool. And guess what? He goes to the church, or went to the church, or his parents go to the church, where Matt is now serving in Blackpool. So all of a sudden, we've got this big connection of life connected through our family and what God is doing in our family. And guess what? We were so blessed. And we give God all of the honour and all of the praise that is due to his name. Now, our writer of Ecclesiastes speaks from the depths of his wisdom. He's told us already that I'm going to gather, I'm the wisest man and I'm going to gather all of my wisdom together in these books so that you, the reader, has all the benefit of my wisdom of what I've encountered, what I've gone through in the hope that you see that doing things and chasing things in life are completely meaningless. Okay, do do we get that? That's what's coming over, that's what's being conveyed. Now, he tells us from his wisdom, and he speaks to us also from his experience. Even if he looks back on his own failures and shortfalls. Yes, I'm afraid that even the wisest man had his shortfalls, had his failures. We're reminded in the historical account of Solomon's reign in 1 Kings, that although Solomon's wealth and wisdom were legendary, there was a snare in his life that he did not avoid. After we've had these lavish descriptions of how wealthy Solomon is, how wise Solomon is, how many people bow down before him. We have all of these massive, lavish descriptions of what he's attained in his life. Chapter 11 of 1 Kings begins with this. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. Now I'm not having a downer on women. All I'm pointing out is that Solomon walked into a snare he'd been told not to. Okay? Other translations start this damning line with but, or however. In other words, it's connecting it to what's gone before. So all of this lavishness that Solomon had, all of this wealth that he had, all of this wisdom that he had was all brilliant, but... He married women and women and had concubines and all of that. Because God had expressly told him not to do that. And yet he did it anyway. The wisest man in all the world did what God didn't t- told him not to do. He went and did it. And actually it ended up being his downfall. So this, this word that some translations just have as now... Other translations have but or however. It connects it to what's gone before. Okay, so you can't just read it in isolation. You have to read the whole thing. Oh, actually, this is something he's done wrong. It's just a passing comment that God's given us. And God doesn't hide things from Scripture. If you do wrong in Scripture, it's there in black and white for the rest of generations to read and see. Why? Because we're supposed to learn from it. When you see this kind of it's connecting bits into other parts. You know, and, and you know it in yourself. When somebody starts talking to you, and you kind of think, yeah, I'm hearing what you're saying, but there's a but coming. Yeah? We've all been there. We've all experienced that, haven't we? Somebody's talking to you, and you kind of go, 
yeah, I like what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. Thanks for buttering me up. Thanks for telling me all the good stuff. But actually, I know by your tone, there's a but coming. And it's like that in these passages. Here's Solomon's glory and his might and his wealth and everything else. But he did these things wrong. So what we're being drawn here to see is that failure to follow God wholeheartedly ends in pain, sorrow, and rejection. Solomon's writings, including Ecclesiastes, shine a light into the very heart of mankind. It's a big spotlight that beams into our souls. Its perspective touches life following God and life rejecting God and everything in between. And as we find ourselves at the end of this book of Ecclesiastes, I hope it's given you a good grounding from which to interpret and study the book further. And so many times we read it and go, oh, it's just a negative, negative book. It is anything but a negative book. It's full of information, full of warnings, full of advice, full of wisdom of what it looks like if you decide to push God to the side. So hopefully we've given us the opportunity to see this book is one of good, sound instruction and not just a depressing footnote to Solomon's life. Far from being meaningless, I want us to see today that there is a reason for the book and how that book is to help us in our Christian faith. If you remember in week two, I used a phrase from Paul's teaching and instructions to Timothy to point out that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work, which includes Ecclesiastes. You've got to put that in there. That is there to include, to show you things that are wrong and right and to prepare and equip you for every good work. So the question we should be asking when we read any scripture is how does it apply to me And what action is it requiring of me? Now, some, very blatantly, don't apply to us today. But we still have to ask the question, what is it that can develop my faith, can develop my Christian life? And in essence, Solomon answers this for us when he concludes his writing in Ecclesiastes. He says in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the most famous of lines in Ecclesiastes, I think, That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. Now, having God in the equation we see here makes sense of the sum of the book. Remove God and we remove life's meaning from our lives. Now, one of the most frustrating things for me when I, was when I realized that reading was actually becoming quite difficult for me. I, uh, do you know when you, when you read, famously you can just take the beginning letter and the last letter, you can take out the rest in the middle. And if you've got fairly good brain, you can actually read the sentence without having the middle portions of words. Your brain is so good that it recognizes the flow of what's written in front of you and it fills in words. Now, I have a problem because I have a 
stigma in an eye, which sees circles as being eclipse or oval, which means that I don't see O's and A's and Q's and B's and D's. I don't see them properly. So I, my brain fills in words that aren't necessarily the right words. Does that make sense? Which is difficult for me because I speed read. <laughs> so when you speed read, you're kind of just following, you're taking the first and last letter and your brain's filling it in. And you're <laughs> but I don't often see the, right, the correct words. My brain is filling in a word that isn't there because of my stigma. It couldn't perceive the words correctly and I wrongly identified, therefore, what the words were. Now, once I realized that this was the case, it was a fairly easy remedy in that I was prescribed some lenses to correct the stigma and also correct my changing vision. I was given a new lens to see through and all became clear. Now, I think that sometimes we can fail to see what is before our very eyes and we don't because, simply because, we're not using the correct lens to read it or see it. And I want us to look at our concluding passage again as an example of this. So it says this, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Yes, I've read it from a different translation. But I want you to hear what it says. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, most translations seem to have adopted the use of this word, duty. Okay? Sometimes it's in brackets. Sometimes it's in italics. Sometimes it's got a footnote there to let you know something. And what it's there to let you know is that actually, that wasn't there in the original Hebrew. The word duty wasn't there. So duty has been put in in order to try and make sense of the sentence and the whole of the book. It becomes the whole duty of man to fear God and follow his commandments. That's what you and I were made for. It's our duty to follow God. Some, some uh, translations don't even draw any, uh, or draw our minds to it at all. They just leave it in there and you read it. And I think when it's in like that, we can, or it can lead us to the wrong conclusion. It can lead us to the, um, it concludes that our works matter. Okay, it's our duty to serve. God made us to serve him. Now, if I said it like that, that sounds wrong, doesn't it? That God made you to serve him. All right? You're God's plaything. God just went, I'm going to make man, and man is just going to serve me and tell me how good I am, which in some respects is true. But we've been given a nature that chooses to love God, chooses to follow him. The onus is on us not to serve, but to love God, who has given everything freely for us. Now, we'll come back to that in a second. But let me illustrate the point. The choice that Adam and Eve had to obey God was reliant on their choice to obey. Would you agree? God just didn't make Adam and Eve and say, that's it, end of story, you're just going to serve me and that's that. He said to them, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, did he not? 
So he gave them a choice to obey or disobey. God in his goodness gave one instruction to Adam and Eve. In other words, be content in the love and the provision and the innocence that's been given to you to, and to enjoy. You don't need anything else. Everything in life is being given to you. Choose to follow me and obey me. You don't need anything else. Choice has been afforded that so man's love can be seen as real and complete. I've often said to people, if you're forced to say sorry to somebody, so let's say, let's say Josh and Matt have had a fight when they're kids, and I say to Josh, look, you've got to go and say sorry to Matt. And Josh dutifully goes to Matt and goes, Dad says I've got to say sorry to you, so I'm sorry. Do you think he's really saying sorry? See, we all know that sorry really means, you know what, I've realised I've done something wrong and I've upset Matt and I shouldn't have done that. So out of myself, I'll go to Matt and I'll say, look, I'm really sorry, Matt, but I shouldn't have done that. Can we be friends again? Because it's real. It's proper expression. It's not being forced on him to do. Now, I've often said that if, if you're forced to love God, what kind of love is that, really? If you can do nothing but love him, what kind of love is that really? So God gives us a choice to love him because actually by our choice to love him, we prove our love. That's how it works. Be wise and choose God. And that's what Solomon also tells us in Ecclesiastes. Why? Because it's a fearful place to be outside of God's love. You don't need anything else. Choice has been afforded so that man's love can be seen as real and complete. As Proverb clearly states to us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of losing the provision and the love that God has given to us, it's a fearful place to be outside of God. So often when we read that, we think, oh, we must fear God somehow, that God is this tyrant that is overloading us with rules and regulations and we must fear him in order to benefit from him which is not true God has given us everything freely and he asks us to choose him be wise and choose God we were designed to be at one with God we were designed to be made whole in God or as Solomon expresses it correctly here in his conclusion so let's drop the duty shall we okay let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. This is the whole of man. Not whole duty, but the whole of man. We are made whole in God. God completes us. God is our wholeness. Without him, if we reject it and push it to the side, what we're saying is we can go it alone. We don't need God and we don't let him complete us. As Paul tells the church in Colossians years later, in his letter to Colossians, in 2 verses 8 and 9, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all of the fullness of God in human body. So there's a big clue. Christ was full. He's whole in God. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head of every ruler 
and every authority. God makes you whole. And life without God is a fearful and horrible place to be. So we see here that Paul is making the same point as he speaks to the church in Kloss. This is the same thing. Jesus, our great rescuer, completes us. He's our fullness. He gives our life meaning. We are made whole in Jesus. In this reality is our hope for a future, and it's guaranteed through the Holy Spirit who then comes and dwells within us and completes us. The entire conclusion of the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes is that man's wisdom is meaningless if we do not view it through the lens of God's love and relationship that he designed us to exist in. Yeah, you're designed to exist with God, not apart from him. Scripture reminds us over and over again, over again that what is gained in life will be lost in death. Anything we gain in this life is actually meaningless, as Solomon puts it, because in death you can't take it with you. What's that famous, uh, you, there are no pockets in a shroud. You can't take it with you. So Solomon is, is just spending a whole book saying, look, everything you think gives life meaning is totally meaningless. It's a vapor. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it just, it's not there. You can't grasp it. It's meaningless to you. What you can grasp, however, is that God made you for eternity with him. And so what matters is that eternity. The writer of Ecclesiastes implores us not to spend our time or our thoughts on what belongs to this earthly life and is meaningless in the grand scheme of eternity. Remember the rope illustration if you were here last week. You know, we exist in that little bit of leather at the start of the tug-of-war rope. But the rest of the rope goes on forever and ever and ever beyond it. So if we spend all of our time thinking about what we're going to do in that little bit of leather, then we forget that what's going to follow that lasts forever and is forever going to be, we're going to deal with it, whether it's in hell or in heaven. It goes on forever. So what we do in that small space of time that was given to us is really important. And we're given that in order to put our lives straight and right with God who, who made us to have fellowship with him. We've walked away from it, so he sent Jesus to restore us back into that fellowship. You've got that small bit of time, make it count because you've got the rest of eternity to follow on. You see, when we are incomplete, when we've not been made whole, when we fail to call upon Jesus to make us complete, we are left with no hope and no future with God. Sorry, black and white, got to say it. Without Jesus in your life, without the provision that God has made through Jesus, without accepting that in your life, you have no hope and no future with God because you're rejecting him and you're not coming back to where he would like you to be, the place where you were made for. You are only complete in Jesus in the sacrifice of Jesus that God ordained was the way for you back to him. It's only that which is complete that will enter heaven. Okay? How do I know that God knows who's got Jesus in their life and who hasn't? Well, it's simply this. Because scripture tells me that the Holy Spirit within you is the guarantee 
of life eternal with God. So something happens to you when you become a Christian, when you call out to God, when you call upon the sacrifice of Jesus, when you accept Jesus as that covering to make you whole, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and does indeed make you whole. And so when, we, when God looks at us, he sees a whole of man. He sees you as being complete. Now, my notes are just rolled on, sorry. Now, the truth is that all that we experience in life actually isn't all that bad, is it? You know, you can actually live in life without God for a little while and it's okay. In fact, we comment regularly on the good things we have and that we see. I've even heard people who don't know God and have no comprehension of Jesus and you know, they'll still walk around in the country and go, isn't it great what God's done? It's fantastic, isn't it? What a lovely world we live in. Because nature itself cries out that there is a creator. And we forget that sometimes. So it's not all bad that's around us. In fact, we can prove time and time again that all of creation declares God's glory. We see it around us and so does everyone else. What we see and experience, therefore, is the tension that exists between a beautiful creation created for man to enjoy and to inhabit and the reality of the bad stuff that exists around us, the pain, the suffering, that somehow seems at odds with the loving creator. Now, how many of you kind of heard or had said to you, if you had declared your Christianity and you said that oh, Jesus is everything, how many have had somebody say to you, but how can God, who you say is loving and beautiful, how can he let people die? How can he let wars happen? How can he let things, the bad things we see in this world happen? How does, how does that compute? Because what they're seeing and what they're expressing is this tension that exists in the world. Because there are lots of bad things. But it isn't God's fault that there are bad things. Guess whose fault it is? Ours. Our fault. Who walked out of the garden? Who decided to reach out and take that fruit? We did. We did. Humans decided to go it alone and we've done it all the way through life. And if you're really honest about your own life, really honest about your own, how you equate things and value systems and everything else, you will see that most of what we do doesn't have God in the equation at all. And when we do put God in the equation, life becomes something which is joyous and wonderful and has a hope and a conclusion for us. You see, as Christians, we begin to understand the consequences of the fall when mankind decided to abandon God and go it alone. Remember that God gave Adam and Eve one rule and one rule only. And the writer of Ecclesiastes pulls out all of the stops to help us equate the futility and emptiness that life possesses when we have taken ourselves out of God's shade and protection. Now, I use those words purposeful. We take ourselves out of the shade of God's protection. Ecclesiastes leaves us aware that we are incomplete and that only God completes us. We cannot strive for it ourselves. Everything we try in life, he says, is utterly meaningless. Everything, unless you include God in the equation. What we need to see and view now is that God has fulfilled his promise of a rescuer. He hasn't just left us in that place. 
A rescue whose sacrifice covers all the sin that separates, covers the sins of those prior to his sending and covers all of those who have existed since and will continue to exist into the future. There is no further rescuer to be sent. Okay? Let me say that loud and clear. There is no further rescuer to be sent. It's done. It's finished. One sacrifice once and for all. Everything to come, everything that's gone before, everything in between. There's no further rescue to be sent. All is captured in the life and the sacrifice of Jesus. In fact, Jesus came and lived the life that we're implored to try and live, but we find it impossible to do. The lens that we should view life through is Jesus. We look at a God who needs to bring justice and punishment to bear, and what do we see when we look at God in that view? We see Jesus stood there. No wonder John, when he wrote Revelation, could not contain himself as he saw the lamb slain, but alive with the ability to open the scrolls on our behalf. He has been found worthy. He is the whole of man, and he is worthy to open the scrolls, and he has made us whole as well. You see, when God looks upon us, so the opposite is true here, when God looks upon the sinfulness of man, and he brings about wrath, because that's what God is going to do, he is a God of justice, when he looks at man, and he sets about bring about his wrath on evil, what he sees as his gaze falls upon us who are guaranteed by the Holy Spirit, who are now whole in Jesus, in Christ, in God, we are whole. What God sees is his son. He doesn't see you. He doesn't see your sin. He sees his son. His gaze falls upon those that have claimed sanctuary, that have claimed forgiveness in the sacrifice of Jesus. Sanctuary from what? Sanctuary from God's wrath, which is to be poured out on the sinful and wickedness and the evil of mankind who have chosen to reject God time and time again. We are literally, it says in Scripture, clothed or hidden with Christ. I want you to think about that. When God's gaze moves across humankind, you who have accepted Jesus are hidden or covered by the sacrifice that Jesus made. Now this is the gospel in a nutshell. There's nothing we can do about it. God provides everything for us and we take it or we don't. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, take it. This is wisdom. Take it. Ephesians 4 says, Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and your attitudes. Put on your new nature. Put it on. You're created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. We know we can't do that, but Jesus does it for us. What is hidden is our wrongdoing and sin. 
our failing, our falling on our knees and crying out for forgiveness, recognizing God's provision in Jesus brings us into the promises of God for eternity. He alone is able to bring us into God's presence. In the Old Testament, obedience to God's instruction was counted as righteousness. But the promise was always apparent that a rescuer would be sent, that would be provided, that would cover all of mankind's transgressions for all time. Isaiah 61 reminds us, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. I am like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding or a bride with her jewels. The sovereign Lord will show his justice to the nations of the world. Everyone will praise him. His righteousness will be like a garden in early spring with plants springing up everywhere. This is Isaiah, the prophet, speaking about what Jesus is going to accomplish, the rescuer to come. And this verse concludes with a beautiful picture of a garden. Yeah. And I think it's no mistake that it finishes with a garden, a bountiful, abundant garden. A garden that represents God's righteousness shading us or us being in the shade of it, his righteousness. See, humankind started off in a garden, didn't it? We all know the story. A garden protected by God's love and his presence. And we chose sin and disobedience. And we were moved out of the garden, out of the shade and protection, and we were placed under the sun, which Ecclesiastes tells you all about. But he doesn't leave it there. Because he concludes that actually there's a way back into that shade and that protection. And that is God who's going to provide a rescuer for you. So it doesn't end there. We're promised a new garden, never to be corrupted again. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street, and on each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop every month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon everything. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night there. No need for lamps or sun, because we're no longer under the sun. Are we seeing the connections here? There's no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God himself will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. We don't, we're not made to exist under the sun. We're made to exist in a place where God's glory and righteousness brings about all the light we will need. And my prayer, our prayer as a leadership team, is that you will come to find that experience. Come to find what God promises you when he makes a way for you to come back into the shade and the protection and come into a beautiful garden that he's made for you and he wants you to serve him not because you're made to serve but because you love him and he proves that his love for you in that he loved you first he's always loved you and he's prepared a way for you to love him back Solomon implores you Fear God, 
and follow his commandments because that makes you whole. I will implore you, take Jesus in your life. Become whole. Become whole again. Take the provision that God has given you. Become whole and exist with God forever. Amen. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and at www.coachhousechurch.org.